So I recently watched a series on uh, Apple Plus called The Shrink Next Door. And it was based on real life events and the life of a man who grew up in New York and took over the family business after his parents' passing. This man named Marty begins to see a therapist as he struggles with anxiety and soon after this therapist and Marty become the best of friends. This therapist sees a way to manipulate Marty and has him cut his own sister, his own family off and ruins other relationships along the way. As the story progresses, Marty becomes aware of the spell he is under and sees that he is being used by the therapist for his own gain and ends the relationship in court, having the therapist's license revoked for improper use and manipulation. This is all a true story. As the final credits roll in the final episode, it is made apparent that this particular therapist manipulated many other clients out of millions of dollars in the same exact way, having them cut off loved ones in the process. So at the very heart of this story is the fact that there is a longing inside everyone for direction and guidance and for some people just flat out being told what to do and how to deal with life. Even if you feel like the most independent person in the world and you scoff at what I just said, the very fact that you feel independent comes from an idea you heard or latched onto uh, to, from someone that you love and respect. We, uh, this, is, this is simply what I want to say. We have a longing for a king. That's what our hearts long for. We have a groaning for a way forward or even a nudge in the right direction. This comes from what we were created for. What were we, were we created for? We were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But how can, we, how can we glorify him or even enjoy him to be satisfied by him if we will not yield to what he commands of us? This all comes from the way things were created, and in the fall we lost. We know, let me say this clearly, we know we need authority in our lives. Deep down, we know we need authority. We know we need someone wiser than us to help us, to help show us the way. Yet because of sin, we look to ourselves and we buck against God's authority. In the garden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, humanity walks in perfect relationship with God, the God who created them, in true submission. And in, in Genesis 3, we lose that perfect relationship driven out of the garden and into the wilderness and from that moment on, humanity is looking for a king. And in rebellion, we look to shadows of who our hearts truly long for. So for the last few weeks, we've looked at some characters in the Old Testament. We looked at Adam, we looked at Abraham and Isaac, and we looked at Moses. We looked at these shadows of who these people were truly pointing us to. Remember, we've talked about several times that if you try to read yourself into Scripture, you're doing something inappropriate with the Bible. The Bible is not meant to be read with you as the main character. 
Okay, even these characters in the Old Testament were not pointing to themselves. They were, they were telling a story of one who was coming from Genesis 3.15 on. We see shadows of Emmanuel, God with us, this anticipated one, the Messiah. So just as a quick review, the first week we looked at Adam, and Adam failed, and where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. In Adam, Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 5, in Adam we all die, but in Christ we live. And then we looked at Abraham's story, and even after a God-given promise to him and his wife, he tried to make his own way. Finally, Isaac is born to them. And even on that mountain, even on that mountain, God gives a substitute by that ram that's caught in the thicket. If you were here that week, we talked about Christ, the horn of our salvation. And then last week we looked at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. This mediator, this high priest who points us to Jesus who is the true mediator. And, our, and he is our great high priest who sympathizes with us, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4. Who met every demand of the law. Moses went up on the mountain to hear from God and deliver his word to his people. And his people, God's people in the, in Exodus chapter 19, they respond with, we will do this. It's very clear, it's emphatic that the people say, because we've seen God act, we've seen what he can do, we've seen how he's delivered us, we will do what he asks. And then the word comes in the flesh. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 1, to accomplish for his people what they could not do. If you would, turn to Romans in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Y'all know I reference this quite a bit. Romans chapter 8. I want to read verses 3 through 4. Think about the life of Moses for just a moment. The life of Moses and who he's pointing us to. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the who? To the Spirit, according to the Spirit. This is, this, these two verses encapsulate for us what Advent is. It's the anticipation of the one who was coming to fulfill the law that you and I could not fulfill. I tried my, my best last week to, to communicate to you that if you continually put on yourself that you are going to do whatever it takes to make God happy, you will be crushed under that law. Only Jesus can come and satisfy what needs to be demanded by the law in your place and in mine. Isn't that good news? That's good news to hear this morning. So all three characters that we looked at, Adam, Abraham, and Moses, are sinful, and they give in to sin at times in their story. This is why they are a shadow of who we need to deliver us from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. We need, listen, church, look at me for just a moment. We need a better Adam. We need a better Abraham and Isaac. We need a better Moses. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. This might be a familiar story to you. Luke chapter 2. 
I'm going to read verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, listen to the name, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I wanted you to pay attention to a name in that, in that short narrative of what happens when Jesus is born. The angels say there is a baby that's born in the town of who? In the town of David. This was a big deal for those shepherds in that day. For, the, for this baby to be born, this Messiah to be born in a specific place uh, of this great king who they would have known. This would have brought up a lot of memories for the people in that day. So last week we left off in Exodus 19 after God uses Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai to give them the ten words or the ten commandments. This is God's better way of living. We talked about this in the summer. In the first eight verses of chapter 19 in Exodus, we need to make an observation of, of how the people of Israel responded to what Moses says after he comes off the mountain. Look at Exodus, if you would, in the Old Testament. I know I'm having us turn to a lot of places. You can follow on the screen if you would like. Exodus 19 verses 7 and 8. It says, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the Lord, of the people to the Lord. You see this back and forth that's taking place in Exodus 19. God comes down, he says, this is what God wants you to do. And the people say, if that's what God says, then that's what we'll do it. And Moses goes and reports back to God. He is acting as a mediator, pointing us to the one who would come and fulfill the law. God gave his word and makes covenant with his people. God has already come through in what he says. He's, he's come through and his, he's fulfilled his promise. The people give their word to be obedient to what he has said, and as they have believed that God can do powerful things. And then the story continues from Exodus all the way to, in, into Deuteronomy and into the leadership of the life of Joshua, who would take Moses' place and take them into the promised land. God traveled among his people, his presence, the Ark of the Covenant that dwelled in the tabernacle, but built specifically as God had commanded. This, this whole traveling of, of the Ark and the tabernacle this was clear that the true God was with his people and he would not abandon them. Then, like last week we looked at, we come to another caveat, but this time in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, if you want to turn there, you, can, you totally can. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, this very end of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no, 
lowercase king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, before you start painting any kind of picture about America in this, I get it. We live in, a, in an interesting time in 2021, almost 2022. You could say, well, that's pretty true right now. Everyone's just kind of doing whatever they want. But the author's trying to help us see here that there was no king, lowercase king, and that there's some sarcasm that's read in this. That the, the author of Judges is, is trying to help us see, like, there was no king, quote unquote. Because if you take a step back and you think, is there a king? Yes, God himself is king. You see how there's some sarcasm that's read into this, this one verse? There was no king in Israel, so everyone did as they pleased. And this is coming right off the back of Exodus 19, where his people say, if God says it, we'll do it. And then you compare this with Judges chapter 20, 21, where it says, People just did whatever they wanted to do. And this is counting the people of Israel, not just the outside nations. This is counting the people of Israel. And the people cry out for a king like the other nations. They want a king that will guide and direct them and fight for them, to be an authority over them. But listen, but only on their terms. Does that sound familiar? We want someone in office but only on our terms, only the guy who, who matches with what I believe, right? And, and here in America, we have that freedom to vote for somebody like this. But in this day, the people of Israel had no vote. They lived under a theocracy, one king who would rule the nation. So the people cry out for a king. They're like, look at all the other nations. They have kings who tell them what to do. Can we have one too? They come to the elders. And they say, can you give us a king like the other nations so that he can defend us, that he can fight for us, that he can be an authority over us? You see how the human heart has a longing to be told what to do? Has, has a longing for guidance, for somewhat of an authority over them. Look at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's in the, the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 8, it'll be up on the screen for you, I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. This is the story of, of Israel demanding their king. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse, starting in verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected who? Me. They have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Verse 9, now then obey their voice, only you shall sol solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is a stark contrast from Exodus where the people are like, we'll do what God says because we've seen his power, we've seen what he can do. 
And now they're like gathering the elders and they're like, hey, we need a king like the other nations. We want to be like them. And God says, this is basically what God is saying. If you read in Romans chapter 1, he's saying, give them over to themselves. If they don't want to be under my authority, give them what they want. I remember having that conversation when I was 15 years old with my dad. I came home. I was terrible to my mom. I was terrible to my dad. I was a terrible example in the community as a pastor's kid. And my dad was sitting on the porch one evening when I came home. And he said, I've decided that I'm going to give you over to yourself. You you, You have life figured out, go for it. One of the most terrifying conversations I've had with my dad ever to date. And you know what I did? As badly as I want to say, okay, sweet, I'll show you. Uh, No, dad, no, no, please, please. Begging him, begging him to not give me over to myself. It's a terrifying thing for God to say this. And then we see it come to fruition in the life of Saul. Saul is chosen to be king over, over Israel. And then, as, as some of you may know, if you have any kind of, of relationship with the Bible, Saul fails horribly and does not lead God's people well. So then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We see this small shepherd boy who is anointed king. Look at 1 Samuel 16. I want to read this for you. 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 6. The header there is David anointed king. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab, I think that's right, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not what not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse, this is David's father, called uh, this other guy and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this. This one. Then Jesse said to Shema, pass by, and, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, sin and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose and went to Ramah. This is where David is anointed king. That doesn't mean he takes office as king from Saul, but he, he is anointed as king. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you might notice what they anointed him with, with what? with a horn filled with oil. Remember, even these these small elements in the stories are pointing us to Christ, who is coming to fulfill what's been said. So here in 1 Samuel 16, God chooses a specific person. He doesn't choose this brother. He doesn't choose this brother. He doesn't choose all these tall, good-looking guys. But he says there has to be one more. And the Bible says he was ruddy. That means he was small in stature. He wasn't someone you would pick as a king. 
So they bring him from being, being uh, a shepherd boy out in the pasture, they bring him out and they anoint him as king. And then the life of David gets interesting. David is threatened by Saul the king and he's chased down. David has opportunities to kill Saul yet does not. Saul dies and David rises to power in 2 Samuel. David reigns over Israel and is victorious and seems to be who they were awaiting all these years. But David sins greatly in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and he suffers great consequences. David's family is toxic and constantly grasping at power and dysfunctional to say the least. If you know anything about David's life, you know about 2 Samuel chapter 11 where David has an affair. And he has this, this man's husband, or this, this woman's husband, he has him murdered basically. And then there's, there's a lot that takes place in David's life. His family is toxic. They're dysfunctional. And just like all those other shadows in 1 Kings chapter 2, when we get to 1 Kings, this great King David who rises to power, guess what happens to him? He dies. Remember we read in Genesis, it, it got to this person's, the lineage of Noah, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. Because the author is trying to help us see that this one that is coming, his death will be the ultimate death over death. That's what the author is trying to help us see in all of this. And there is much to say about King David. A lowly shepherd boy becomes king and conquered many other nations, penned most of the Psalms, many of them prophetic, but he still dies. He could not defeat the great dragon once foretold in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I want you to turn to one more place, Psalm 110. This is a psalm pointing us to the true and better David. David wrote about this coming Messiah who is the Christ, the anointed one that is coming to save his people from their sins. As we read these seven verses, listen to who David is describing. This is not some lightweight who cowers at other nations or gives in to sinful desires, but one who comes to rule the, nation, the nations, one to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Look at Psalm 110, if you turn there. Psalm 110, I'm going to read all seven verses. It says, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is, this is what Psalm 10 is saying. I'm, I'm going to break this down, and this comes from an article I got at Desiring God by David Mathis. Verses 1 and 2, he defeats our enemies once and for all. That's 
the good news of the gospel. He defeats our enemies once and for all. Verse 3, his people will follow him gladly, not begrudgingly, and he will feed them and give them water, and they will never thirst again. This is all it's saying is that he will satisfy his people. Verse 4, he keeps his covenant, though you do not. That this king keeps his promises, though we are unfaithful. We just sang about that. Verse 5, he will defeat leaders who oppose him. This is the second advent that's coming. We saw the first advent in, in this baby that was born in this manger. We, as God's people, are awaiting the second advent, and he will not come back as a baby. He will come as a ferocious king with fire coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth to defeat those who oppose him. Verse 5. Verse 6. He will pour out contempt and wrath on the unrepentant. Those who do not submit their lives to Christ will suffer the consequences under Almighty God, the Lamb who was slain forever. And then verse 7, the whole world will know that he is the Messiah, the anointed one who came to fulfill all of this. And I, I want, this is where I want to end our time. Turn to Luke chapter 4, if you would, for just a sec. Luke chapter 4, the Hunter family read this as our sacred text. And I want to spend some time looking at it for just a second. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is the, the prophecy of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, This is why I came. I came to set the captives free. Those who are blind, those who are in prison, I came to set them free. Just like the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before was, was speaking about me, this scripture has been fulfilled in your very hearing, in your very seeing in this moment. This has been fulfilled for you. And then Jesus sits down, and it's kind of like that drop the mic moment. Everyone's just like, okay, this, this guy just claimed to be God. That's what he did. Jesus just claimed to be God in this moment, because that's what they were expecting of God to do. We serve a good and gracious king. Think of this for just a moment. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, willingly came and put on flesh, glorifying the Father and empowered by the Spirit to accomplish for those who were in darkness, lost and dead in sin. What does Jesus say of himself? This is what he says of himself. I am the king that you have been looking for, not just to lead you and be victorious, 
but to satisfy your longing heart with my rule and my reign. This is the last place I want you to turn. Luke chapter 18. We're going to end here. I want you to see how this, how this transpires in Scripture. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 35. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out. Listen to what he says. Jesus, son of who? Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Verse 43, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to who? To God. This is, listen church, this story of this blind man crying out to the son of David is a conversion story that we see taking place. When God gives you a new nature, when he gives you a new heart, he removes your heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, gives you new affections for his word and for his people and for all the things that he does and for himself. This is what happens in Luke chapter 18. We were blind and now what? We can see. We were, we were once dead and now we are alive in Christ. And this blind man cries out, he says, son of David, son of David, give me sight, I need to see. He knew that he had a need in this moment. And he knew that this son of David, this Messiah, this anointed one could come and heal him. And yes, this man is healed physically. But really what our hearts long for is to be healed spiritually. But listen, church. I'm not going to be one of those pastors that stands up here and says that God's will is for always for you to be healed. God may never heal you until you see him face to face. And that's when the ultimate healing comes, physically speaking. But here, here's the truth. Here's the truth. If you are in Christ, if you are hidden in Christ, you have been healed. You have been healed of the affliction of sin. And that is the best news you can hear today is that you were blind and now you can see you were dead and now you are alive, you were lost and now you were found by the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. No one, no one can compare to this King. Not even this King David can compare to this greater King who came and is satisfying every longing heart that he has called to himself. And, and I want you to pay attention to one quick thing here in Luke chapter 18. When Jesus heals this man, he restores to him his sight, and then he says this. He says, your faith has healed you. And here's where we get caught up in this. We, got, we get caught up in this, in this feeling like we have to muster up this faith from somewhere, like, where do I get this faith? Jesus, listen church, look at me for just a moment. 
Jesus is saying here, your faith has made you well because Jesus has made him well. Do you make that connection? We cannot have faith without Jesus. We cannot muster up anything from deep inside of our hearts and say, okay, God, here's enough faith for you. Jesus says, I come and I give you enough faith to believe. That's the good news of the gospel, is that he gives us the faith to believe. In this moment, he says, your faith has made you well, because he's looking at him face to face in that moment. He says, guess who your faith is, blind man? Me. Your faith has made you well. This is what a good and gracious king does. He comes and sets the captives free. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. And we, we end our time like this every, every Sunday. We, we don't want to put pressure on anyone. We don't want to make you feel sad and feel like you have to raise your hand, anything like that. But there is an invitation to you. If you are not in Christ this morning, if, you, if you, you have not confessed him as Christ, if you are still unrepentant in this place, my invitation is to you, put your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin, turn from yourself, turn from your wicked ways, and look to Christ. He is the only one who can save you. And if you are in Christ this morning, my invitation to you is, to be reminded of the goodness of this king, that not even David could satisfy his people, that this good and gracious king came and he lived the life you and I couldn't live perfectly, and he died a substitutionary death in your place and in mine. And after being three days in the grave in this borrowed tomb, he defeats death, rising from this grave and resurrection power. Defeating death. Defeating death. Do you hear that, church? Defeating death once and for all for his people. And after that, after spending some time here on earth, he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for you day and night. If you don't hear anything else, saint, hear that, that this king is praying for you by name. He is interceding for you day and night, and he does not tire. He does not grow weary. So I'm going to pray in just a moment, and I'll be in the back of the room. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you would like to know this Christ, come and know this Christ. Let's pray.